Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. And welcome to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. Brad, my man, how's everything going? Everything is going. I feel like that's um, that's the best I can do for you right now. But uh, no, things are going pretty well for me. All I get is the generic answers. You know, by the way, how how's everything going is a horrible question. I need a new question to answer because it provokes generic answers of I'm fine, everything's going all right. But um, that tangent aside, everything's all right. So I am excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today because it's kind of sports related, but also applies to life in general. And that is, we're calling it Game 7. You could call it clutch performance. You could call it coming through under pressure or when the stakes are on the line. Whatever you want to frame it as, I think it's broad and applicable and something that we all face in a myriad of performance states and structures. We had the idea to record this show uh, because we've both been tuning in to the NBA playoffs, which have been really exciting this year for a number of reasons, uh, starting with the fact that it's just some sports on TV, something to watch other than CNN in the evening, and also because there's been a lot of parity in the leagues. So the vast majority of series have gone pretty deep. And we've seen some Game 7s, we've seen some athletes step up, we've seen some athletes choke, and we figured that it was a good time to address the topic. So... To start, let's frame being clutch and choking. And let's stick with those two terms. Um, there, like as Steve was alluding to, there's different ways to get at these things. But um, for, for the purposes of this conversation, let's use being clutch and choking. So Steve, how do you define those two, those two ways of performing in a metaphorical or proverbial, whatever the right word is, game seven? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I think clutch is coming through when pressure is high, when stakes are on the line, and um, you come through, essentially. I think choking, on the other hand, is, is a little harder to define because I think it's different than just underperforming, right? Choking, to me, is when your norm is X... And you are, and you perform well below X, so much f- so that it's it's you're below even your floor. You know, the example I like to give is if if you're a ninety percent, you know, uh, free throw shooter, and you miss, you know, three free throws in a row, that is choking. Mm-hmm. So that's how I kind of frame it differentiating it versus just generic underperformance. And then in between those two extremes of clutch and choking, there's playing at your usual standard and there's playing a little bit below your usual standard. Is that right? So it's clutch, you step up, you 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 play above your above your station. There's you play at your station, there's you you have a bad night, a bad game and there is choking. So I I like that because I think that it, it gets to some nuance too. And sometimes I think even just in really high pressure situations, I'm curious 
what you think, Steve. Is playing at your station good enough? Or like should the aim be to be clutch? Because sometimes I think that, you know, if you're if you're already a pretty good performer in whatever endeavor you're doing, and when the pressure's on, just to even stay where you are often is portrayed as being this great trait. It's almost like we only see downside in these situations. We don't often see upside. Is am I thinking about this right or wrong? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. You know, is under the highest of pressure is doing what your you know norm is. Is that clutch? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think there you're looking at the norm is to think that pressure brings down your norm, right? I'd use norm way too much there. But the idea is that, okay, it's really difficult to stay like at your baseline. So even doing that is is coming through in the clutch. Um, y- you know, I think there's a lot of nuance there and I'm not sure what the answer is. I think I think it can be. I think it just kind of depends on the situation and the person. So let's talk about the things that we can do to avoid choking, to be clutch, uh, or to rescue ourselves if we are choking. So approaching a high-stakes, high-pressure game, uh, or again, I, I'm using the word game, but it can be a public speaking event. It can be a high-stakes trial if you're an attorney. You guys get the point. Um, what do we do before the gun goes off? Good question. So, you know, there's a lot of good research. And since I'm the designated science nerd, I'm going to turn to that. And that there's actually research that kind of defines what people experience when they have when they are able to perform under uh, in the clutch. And running down a couple of these things there. It's interesting, Brad, I think you're going to tie this to other psychological motivation theories but anyways is you tend to see things as a challenge and not a threat okay you tend to have a higher perceived level of control you tend to have intrinsic motivation only it's intrinsic motivation to accomplish which is a delineation versus just to like experience or to know or to understand so, when you're looking at these things of, okay, how do we set ourselves up? To me, it's just, it's it's like falling in line with those ideas of, okay, we need to figure out a way to handle the anxiety and pressure, knowing that clutch, when, when people come through in the clutch, they still feel and experience all of those things, right? They just frame them in a different way. The ability to maintain confidence, or self, uh, self-regard, or feel secure so that you can perform. And then the ability to keep that like motivation in a, um, in a positive manner and tying that into another aspect that is interesting is clutch performers generally, we talk about intrinsic motivation, but they generally have some sort of fixed goal or outcome which they're, ex- they're expecting, right? So it's almost like, you know, we're talking nuance, but it's almost like you have to hold this like intrinsic motivation while at the same time having like this direct specific goal that has an outcome tied to it, but not letting that like devolve into like so outcome extrinsic focus. Why is that having that extrinsic goal so important? 
So, good question. To me, it comes down to it's a centering effect, right? So, we know that attention, like, plays a big role when we're talking about clutch versus choking. So, you know, there's about five or six different theories on choking, which we'll get into maybe. But a a large degree of it or a large, um, you know, pattern in it is where your attention is focused. So when you're when you choke, a lot of times your attention goes so internal, right? That you start doing things almost like a novice would, right? Uh, you, when we think of an expert versus a novice when we're performing a task, an expert just like does it automatically. Like they pick up the football, they just throw it, right? A novice a lot of times sits there and thinks, "Okay, like I need to have my elbow in this position and my arm in this position. And like, you know, it needs to come off my hand in this spot. You have to almost think of it segmentally. Well, what tends to happen when athletes choke is they almost default into this too much internal focus, um, thinking of things segmentally. So the idea is why do you need a fixed goal, an outcome goal? Well, part of that is because it helps keep your attention on the task at hand and like narrowed in on what needs to be accomplished versus like having it either default towards like too much internal or default towards too much distraction, which is also tied to choking. Makes a lot of sense. It It is reminiscent to me of uh, getting out of your own way or even a flow experience where the less your ego is involved, the better you're going to perform because the more that your ego is involved, the more that you are reflecting on how are you doing? Are my mechanics right? And it's just like the more you think, the more there's a chance to mess up. Something else that came to mind for me that mirrors the science, but um, is a little bit more, I guess, just anecdotal is this notion of being able to show up and do what you need to do on a day with the best weather or on the day in the middle of a terrible lightning and thunderstorm. And the weather can be external, so what's happening around you, but it can also be internal, so how you're feeling. So the you know once I've worked with a golfer um, and in, in something that we talked a lot about was in big tournaments just choking. And instead of having him try to learn how to calm himself down in key situations, we actually did the opposite. We had him think terrible thoughts, play super loud music, get himself into a complete choking affect, and then go practice putting. And the theory was that if he could putt, even while he was an anxiety level of nine and voices in his head telling him that he's going to miss it and he could make it, then nothing would phase him. And I do think that is something that we often get wrong in preparing for these big moments. Um, we, you know, the, the, I guess the, the first thing that we try to do is we try to calm ourselves down. And as you and I have written about extensively, that works for some people if you're trained to be able to calm yourself down. But if you're not, what ends up happening is you don't calm down and then you get even more anxious because you're like, oh shit, I tried to calm myself down and I'm not calm. So then we talk about channeling that energy and those nerves into excitement and reframing it from this is a bad thing to this is a good thing. There's a reason my palms are sweaty. There's a reason my heart rate is up. It's because my body knows that this is important 
and it's getting aroused to do what it's going to do. But then there's the third thing, which is actually just labeling whatever's happening is really shitty and not feeling good and still being able to go out there and make the putt, give the talk, um, win the case. You, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's such a big mis- misnomer is that we have this idea that in the popular culture that the way to deal with this stuff, this pressure, this anxiety is to reduce it or uh, eliminate it. But like that, that isn't practical for a lot of people in a lot of ways. And in actuality, as you discussed right there, as you mentioned right there, like all the research, all the experience is pretty clear that in clutch moments arousal is higher than like in in any other moment, right? It's heightened arousal. Um, You mentioned flow there. One of the things that distinguishes flow from clutch is flow is generally occurs in what we call like optimal arousal. So this nice, neat middle point where we're like, you know, have some degree of arousal or anxiety or stress or whatever, but not overloaded. Clutch states generally occur when you have arousal is through the roof because the, you know, the experience kind of demands it, but we're able to either reframe it or handle it and cope with it and deal with it. Exactly. And that's so important. I'm interjecting because I think reframe like that's out there and there are times that that can work, but there are other times where you can't reframe it because you know that you're fucking lying to yourself. I mean, excuse my French, but it's like, oh, I'm just excited. This is great. It's like, no, you're freaking melting down and nervous because you're on the world stage and not having your best day. And I think that maybe it's because it doesn't fit the neat narrative of positive psychology. But I do think that really learning how to be okay with not feeling okay is such an important skill. And I think sports psychology gets this wrong often because sports psychology takes a lot of focus on reframing your mindset. Whereas if I was really struggling with choking, I would go see a clinical psychologist that works with people with debilitating anxiety. Because so, it's a very different route to being able to get through. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, and I sit on the, the border of sports psychology a lot of times, and I agree to a degree. Um, I think that I, I, I think if we look at it, you know, I, I've been kind of, I do a lot of consulting work in the sports world around this stuff. And it's, it's interesting because I've been like wrestling with this model in my head of, okay, when you're looking at this clutch versus choking idea, like, yes, framing, as you said, matters. Yes, like it, it, these abilities to calm or whatever matter. But at some point that gets thrown out the door because the situation like, it, it just sucks sometimes. You know, I, I think of in my own life, like, you know, when I ran the pre-classic in high school, uh, so one of the biggest televised pro track meets in, in the, you know, in the in the country for sure and in the world, I remember getting there and I'd be like, I cannot calm down. Nothing is going to work. I'm a, like, I'm just going to be a nervous mess no matter what. I couldn't look up, up into the stands or anything. And there is no way in that, with my capacity in that moment, I was going to get any calmer. You just have to deal with it. But the nice thing is that there are tools and abilities or training that you can do to deal with it. And tying this back to this clutch idea, I think the people who figure out how to perform in the clutch are able to keep keep their cognition or their cognitive abilities going 
despite high levels of arousal, high levels of potential negative emotion, right? Or rumination or whatever inner thoughts that, that are there. They're just, they're part of it, Mm -hmm. but they're able to like figure out their cognition and like keep things, you know, in line moving forward despite all this other stuff going on. Yeah. And this reminds me of, um, in clinical, in, in clinical psychology, acceptance and commitment therapy, which basically says that the way to move through negative feeling in thinking states is to be really clear about what your values are, what you are striving toward, and then accept whatever you are feeling. Don't wrestle with it. Don't try to make it go away. Just let it be there. And then work towards achieving those values. And earlier, when you were talking about the importance of an external goal and being clutch, I wonder if that external goal in the model of clutch versus choking is kind of similar to those values. It gives you something to focus on other than what you're feeling. And the hope is that once you shift focus to that thing for enough time, your brain kind of forgets about all the self-talk and then just latches onto and becomes one with the goal. Because it's very, very, very hard to change the way that you're thinking or feeling by trying to change the way that you're thinking or feeling. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right there. And, you know, one other thing that we haven't talked about on the, again, very clear in the research is that under clutch performance, there's also a conscious decision to increase that effort and intensity. And I call it the like flip the switch moment, right? You know, I see this in runners all the time when they're going in a race, you can start to see panic and like their their movement and their eyes even. And then, like, some are able to just, like, flip the switch. We call it, like, bear down and, like, make their way through that patch, you know, that rough patch. And I think that that's what we're kind of getting at here is it's, like, you need this you need this goal that helps keep you centered and focused, right? But it's also, like, a decision and a ability to, like, flip that switch despite everything else that's that's going on and to me and i'm pretty sure this is research back too it's not like it it's not like this like talent thing that we either have or or don't have it's like this this idea that we can you know train this to a degree or put us in a situation where we can you know um function or handle these things better than you know we do right now yeah, I agree. Um, I I think that that is such an important part of it. And go, go so, ahead, Steve. You were going to yeah. Do I was just going to throw one other thing out here that I think again, it's it's something that I've been thinking about on this topic for a long time. Is there's this there's this idea in um, neuroscience and cognitive psych um, that basically it's called the state of mind's hypothesis. And ooh, I haven't heard go, of this. Exciting. Y- we're going to go into the weeds a All little right, bit here. Magnus, let's go. But um, what it basically says is it connects, it's like broad versus narrow, okay? And you're aware of some of this research, Brad, where if you go broad, like with your thinking or your attention, what happens in terms of creativity? You tend to increase it, right? There's a lot of good research out on that. If you go narrow, <laughs> 
you tend to be locked in or focused and only see the details, right? So their state of mind's hypothesis basically takes this broad and narrow and ties it to what we call bottom-up or top-down processing, which is basically, do you pay attention to the sensory information, bottom-up, or do you pay, or do you function more in like a predictive world, like you're predicting what's happening and then your brain is. So without going too far into the weeds, this idea basically says that bottom-up or broad processing is, is, is related to broad thinking, global expanded attention, sensory information, being exploratory, and then having generally positive affect, so positive mood states. Now, narrow, on the other hand, is tied to prediction thinking, like local focused attention, like narrow thought, um, exploitatory, meaning instead of exploratory, and then uh, generally tied to negative food or negative mood, sorry. And what's happens and what they believe is that if any of these parameters in terms of perception, attention, thought, like experience, mood, like if you broaden it out, it drags the others with them, if that makes sense. So if we broaden our attention, if we go wide, it drags our thinking to be more broad. If we narrow our attention, it drags our thinking to be more, you know, narrow, ruminative, etc. And the same can be said for like thinking as well. If we narrow our thinking, it drags our attention or perception with it. So what does that have to do with this clutch idea? Yeah, I was just going to say, so let's make this real. So I'm... I'm a professional basketball player approaching game seven, or I am about to give a huge talk to my company in front of an audience larger than I ever had when the stakes are high. So generally what happens, right? We've talked about clutch and pressure and all that stuff. It tends to cause us to narrow, right? Because our focus and attention becomes on the thing that matters, right? That's in front of us. The goal that is in front of us. Our thought patterns center around this idea. A lot of times I've used rumination, but a lot of times we get stuck, right? When I feel pain or anxiety going into a race, I start to get super anxious. My thoughts are all centered around that, right? Et cetera, et cetera. The idea behind being clutch or the idea like tying this to clutch is essentially is We don't, like, being narrow generally can help in performance states, but we have to be able to be narrow without going too far in terms of negative emotions, ruminations, like thought patterns, etc., that just spiral us down. Doesn't this, but isn't this the opposite of flow? Because I guess flow starts out narrow, and maybe you mean narrow by, like, focus, but then the ultimate goal of flow is to just totally transcend yourself. And I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go into um, a rated R example for the kids here, but I really find this fascinating because it's an area where some people struggle and choke. So we're gonna talk about sex on the Growth Equation podcast. Oh gosh, hide your kids, hide your kids. So sex. If you're brand new to sex and you're super nervous and you don't know what you're doing and you're thinking a lot and trying to get it right you are not going to have as good of an experience 
is if you just let go and lose yourself in the moment. Now we're going to go from rated R to rated X. If you're really thinking about what you're doing in tense, you probably won't have an orgasm. The reason I bring this up is because in Tibetan Buddhism, guess what the word is for nirvana? Orgasm. Why? <laughs> because it's the perfect metaphor for the meditation practice. So, if so wait, wait, let me finish. If you're thinking about trying to transcend yourself, you're never going to do it. It's only when you let go and you release that you get out of your own way. And that's the paradox of meditation. You have to try really, really hard in practice until trying is the very thing that gets in your way. And I think it's so freaking brilliant that in Tibetan Buddhism, orgasm is one of the ways that they talk about nirvana. It's the center of the mandala. It's when you totally get out of your own way. I, I love that you brought up this example because I think it gets at a couple of things. So let's talk about this example. So let's talk about this in two ways. Okay. And this is going to be a deep conversation, I guess. Um, let's talk about this in terms of the state of minds, right? So I just said being narrow generally helps sometimes during clutch performance, but it's narrow without having, without getting that thought, emotion, negative regard going on. So generally what I think in terms of narrow is, I mean, your attention narrows in on the goal to put it front of mind, right? But in this thing, you have to be, when we're talking clutch performances, you have to have it narrowed and complete and deliberate focus, heightened awareness, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to do it while keeping the thoughts and negativity at bay or like dealing with it. Okay. So this is what I, when I talk the state of minds, it's, it's, you're generally all these things are connected, but when you're talking about a clutch performance, you're trying to use this one path while not having these other things associated with normally comes with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, a little bit, to be honest, so, like not completely still. So keep going. Okay. So let's broaden out. Maybe this will help make sense. When we talk about levels of performance at the top, and this is pretty clear in the research, um, we'll cite it in our show notes. When we're talking about performing at our best, right? You can generally let it happen or you can generally try to make it happen. And a lot of times make it happen backfires, right? But we can also deem these and researchers have deemed these as either having clutch, trying to make it happen. As I said, having deliberate, trying to um, increase effort or letting it happen, which is a lot of times related to flow. Okay. Both lead to incredible, like very good performances. And I would say flow is more in tune with your sex example. And it feels, I think I know where you're going with this now. So flow feels better. But you can sometimes maybe force your way to an orgasm and it might have been super stressful and didn't feel well, but hey, you did it. And in the case of being clutch, you won the game. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's the distinction there in terms of performance states. Both get you to the end. Flow is what we would call like, it feels better in our, I'm going to go away from sex and ba back into racing. Okay. Man, we are, we are right on, um, right on personality. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Um, but there have been several races Steve, I brought. Steve and, Steve and his wife, Hillary, for their anniversary, they race each other in the mile. 
<laughs> she <laughs> might be wins, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's I digress. Um, but there are races that feel almost effortless, right? Where it's, it's, it's literally you get, you're enjoying it during pain is there, but not really you get done. You're like, Oh man, like I feel great. I'm exhilarated. Like that didn't hurt at all. I could have run faster. Those are your flow races. You have similar races in terms of performance standard that are really freaking difficult and take a ton of effort and during it suck big time. But then afterwards, it's a great performance and you feel great because, again, you won game seven or you ran a PR or whatever have you. Those are what we'll call clutch performances. So performance state is the difference in ter- or the same in terms of the outcome. Mm-hmm. But getting there required these two different pathways, um, one almost effortless and one effortful to get to that same spot. And I would argue, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the effortless performance is generally a better one. Not only feels better, and, and, and maybe this is where my hypothesis is wrong, but I'm, I'm not saying you don't accomplish the goal. Sure, you win the race. But what you're telling me is if you're in a flow state, you don't go 359 and win the race. And if you're making it happen, you don't go 402 and win the race. Like it's yeah. truly the same outcome. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm 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 getting at. I mean, the research is pretty. Cool. So think of it. Think of it like that's news to me. I would have always. And again, like you know, this this is um, this is part of my thinking, which is less about like, well, what's the empirical performance study on this topic, and more just if you look at centuries of history and patterns and myth. Hell, you have Joseph Campbell talking about right. For those that don't know, Joseph Campbell, the world's like by far most preeminent scholar on myth and cultural studies. Um, famously, when Bill Moyers in his interview series for PBS asked Joseph Campbell, has he ever had a peak experience? He's like, oh, yeah, I've had like a, a hugely spiritual experience. And Bill Moyers, well, how did it happen? And Joseph Campbell said, I was running 400s and I totally lost myself. So that's how I've always thought about it. Yeah, so it's interesting. And for those who want to dive into the weeds with us, uh, Christian Swan is the researcher who's done a lot of work in this. But it's not just, you know, I compare this in my own own life, right? So I've, I've run 401 for the mile. Um, and the two times that I ran 401, one time my ultimate PR was really, it was Prefontaine Classic and it was really freaking tough. <laughs> I was like, grinding for majority of that race. That's what I would consider a clutch. The other time I ran uh, 401.5 in high school at the district championship, like it was flow. I didn't know. I was in the zone, didn't hurt that much, finished thinking like, oh, I can get under four, no problem. And, And it's that illusion that often tricks people into thinking like, oh, I can run better. You see this all the time in racing is often like when those flow type races happen, the athletes, you know, come to the coach after and be like, I can run, you know, several seconds faster. There's more there because we're so used to tying effort to performance. So if the effort we feel like we put out in terms of fatigue, going through the pain, et cetera, wasn't at the highest level, we think there's more there, but there's not because it was just a flow type performance. So point 
point being here is like, and again, Christian Swan and some other researchers have interviewed world-class athletes talking about their top performance in the, these different states, is you can get to the same level of performance in different ways. The flow is more uh, preferential because it's a better overall experience. But in terms of if we're looking at just performance outcome, you can get to that same spot, not all the time, but um, every once in a while using this, like what's called this clutch performance state. So then one more question on this and definitely deep into the weeds. So then walk me through the difference between making it happen, very effortful, um, even when I talk about this, I notice like my eyebrows are kind of scrunching, like, you know, strenuous effort versus getting in your own way and trying too hard, which I think you said is like what happens when you choke. Yep. So let's, let's talk about this. This is why there's a lot of nuance here. And, and you know what, earlier I brought up this state of mind. And the reason I did was because we need to have this complete and de- deliberate focus this heightened awareness and arousal, right? This intense effort in these clutch states. But we need to be able to do that without getting in our own way. So the difference between a clutch state, let's say, and a making it happen, don't perform state is all those things are probably there in terms of like, oh, I'm going to try and make it happen. Oh, like I'm I'm, I'm focused on the task at hand, etc., But we let it go in terms of negative thoughts take over, we ruminate, that heightened arousal turns into anxiety or fear or panic that we can't control, right? And like we lose, our perceived control goes from being able to handle it to not being able to handle it. So it's, it's, it's like this nuanced experience of like, making it happen while still having control versus making it happen while losing and spiraling in these other regards, which then drags our performance down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So then, so now we've got, um, before we transition into choking, because I know you said you've got six items for choking. This is like becoming a, a McKinsey PowerPoint presentation. So the three things for being clutch are... Flow state, orgasm, totally letting go. You're in the moment. It's fucking awesome. Making it happen, you are very effortful, strenuous, but you are still very much focused on the task. And even though there's a lot of thinking involved and a lot of effort, it's task-focused. And then there is getting in your own way, which also is very strenuous, very effortful, a lot of thinking involved, but the thinking is more self-referential. Is Perfect. Couldn't C- summed it up better. All right. Look at us. Good job. We made it to Good job, point. Professor Magnus. I just aced the test. Okay. <laughs> so now let's talk about choking. So what happens when you're choking and how do you rescue yourself? And I'm, I'm kind of playing the role of interviewing you because I know you've spent a lot more time in the research here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify this and use uh, another researcher's kind of framing, uh, Rob Gray. Uh, which I mentioned, there's like six, there's there's a lot of theories on choking and rightfully so, because it's like, a, it's a big issue. And I'm going to simplify it into two main concepts, which are turning towards 
versus turning away. So turning towards means that like um, pressure gives us this like internal focus of attention that disrupts our automatic ability to do well-learned like skills that are ingrained. So turning inwards towards like we think it's that example I gave earlier where something that's an ingrained process becomes this like novice like step-by-step thing that disrupts our skill. Okay. So there's three or four different theories on like the nuance of that. But the basic gist of it is when we turn towards or turn inwards, things become disrupted. And then there's what we call the turning away theories, which again are like three or four different theories that basically argue that um, distraction or inability to focus our attention, not having the working memory capacity to like keep focused on the task causes us to, to choke. Okay, so when pressure increases um, attention, uh, you're not ability. You don't have the ability to control your attention or influence your thoughts or negative emotions or whatever have you. So that gets in your in your way of of performing. Now, there's again a lot of nuance in in regards to how that might happen, but those are the two basic gists of of what we think of, uh, might happen. And what I, before I kind of turn it back over to your thoughts, Brad, I think it's important to understand here, um, that we talk about choking in, in a kind of like broad area. And the reality is, and again, I don't know the data well enough, but the reality is these two processes both probably happen. And they both are kind of dependent on the task at hand. So if we think of choking in uh, golf, right, it's probably a slightly different, uh, you know, cognitive, you know, uh, thing that happens versus choking in a math test or a math, whatever, some sort of different test. And I think that that's where a lot of times we have the reason why we have all these theories is that they both probably apply to different situations and um, and it's very task dependent. So then, okay, so then let's get out of concept and into real life. So talk me through choking in golf and what's going on there versus choking in a math test. I, You know, that's a good question. I don't have all the answers for that. <laughs> but... But but generally, what happens when you look at, at at golf is it's it's more likely to be a um, focus of attention turning inwards. Yep, issue. I'm nervous. I'm thinking about the pot. I'm thinking about the fact that I'm nervous. Right, exactly. And in math, it's more likely to be a working memory, like choking thing, is in the sense that like I have so many things to uh, worry about. Attention pressure go up, decreases my capacity, let it like handle all these processes that Got are it. supposed and to it makes be total going sense. on. And next thing I know, I'm like staring at posters in the middle school cafeteria instead of focusing on my math test. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so then how do we rescue ourselves if we're in those situations? So I think, I think, as I mentioned earlier, a big part of what helps is preparing for these situations so they're not seen as abnormal. 
Because the worst thing that can happen is you find yourself staring at the wall on the math test, or you find yourself very um, self-referentially focused while trying to putt, and then you freak out even more. And then it just becomes like this vicious cycle of negative thinking and negative feeling that builds on itself versus being able to say, oh, I'm in this situation. It sucks. I can't reframe this as excitement. There's nothing good about it. But I've been here before. So let me redirect and come back to focusing on the task at hand. And I know that it's definitely um, in vogue and continues to be. And for me, it, it's, it's really more of a spiritual practice than a performance enhancer at this point. But I do believe that this is why meditation is so often talked about as helpful. Because what it allows you to do, not allows you, what it teaches you to do, the skill that it builds is the ability to get lost on a train of thought or feeling, recognize that you're lost, and then come back to focusing on your breath. Yeah, I, which, I agree. Which I is think. Like, that's the muscle you're training. People often think of meditation as like, oh, I'm going to sit and relax. Maybe that's a byproduct of a, of, a, of a certain kind of sit. But some of the most beneficial sits in meditation are when you're trying to sit for 20 minutes. And 10 minutes in, you realize that you've been thinking about God knows what. And instead of beating yourself up about it, you just say, oh, I've been thinking about God knows what for 10 minutes. I'm going to come back to the breath. And doing that over and over again, because that's what you can do when you find yourself staring at the wall during the math test or freaking out on the putting green. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And I think this is why meditation is becoming increasingly used. And it's not the it's not like the be-all, end-all tool, but it's one tool because it, is, it attacks the things that often get in our way and cause the choking. Which is ourselves. Right. But so it, <laughs> like, it is like, our- no, and I want and I want to get on that because like, you know, this is more my area of expertise. If you follow like the the point of meditation all the way down, you literally like transcend yourself. So this is just a step along the path. Yeah. So, you know, when I when we zoom out, we talked about like attention there and, and working memory and distraction and all that. But I think it like it you're getting to the the root of it, which is we need to address the underlying issues that are putting us in these situations, right? And meditation, a lot of times, addresses what I'd call this um, this feeling, thought, attention, like connection, right? How how deeply intertwined those are, and whether we can create the space to like deal with them and direct them or like accept them mm-hmm. uh, in in a direction that is, that is like productive because yeah, it, yeah and I don't want to ba- I don't want to sit here and bash sports psychology because they're a phenomenal sports psychologist but again this gets back to what I was saying where it's like when I'm working with an athlete on choking and I only I've only coached a few athletes so for me it's much more often like an executive or an entrepreneur I'm not looking at performance psychology. I'm looking at clinical psychology because what you're describing is literally cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Yeah. Like how our thoughts, feelings, and actions are all intertwined and trying to unwind that a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's, I think I'll push back a little bit. I think it's interesting if you know the history of sports psychology, um, at, at the very beginning, it didn't work very well because they used a lot of clinical psychologists ideas in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, but um, clinical psychology in the 60s and 70s is so different than right. no, it is now. No. That was like sit on the couch and tell me about your dreams. Right. No, I know I know. I'm just I'm just pointing to pointing to this. So it's like 
sports psychology like grew out of this idea of it's interesting because it grew out of this idea of like, oh, for performance, like we can't like we shouldn't the clinical psychology doesn't work exactly. So we need to go in this different route. And then clinical psychology has progressed to a large degree that now I think it's like, oh, we need to take these ideas back. And like you see like the long big term picture that's kind of happened that that is interesting. Um, Mm, That is very interesting. But anyways, that's a divergent. So I I think it's, you know, it's this feeling thought like action kind of paradigm that a lot of times gets in our way in terms of choking. So it's like I I tend to think of it as, as a snowball coming down a mountain and that when we choke it, it's because the snowball has gained a lot of speed, a lot of mass behind it. And we can get in its way either at the top when it's easy to, or at some way along the line, we can either divert it or it just kind of keeps growing and and growing and then we can't control it. So like when I hear like meditation and mindfulness and things like that, to me, that's gaining the ability at the top of the mountain to attend, to figure out how to keep these, let's say, feelings and thoughts from spiraling before they get to a point where, um, you know, you, you can't do anything about it. And I think often, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, you asked, like, what do we do about choking? And I said, I don't know in the moment, because I think a large part of it is like developing those skills so that you can handle it early enough so it's not when you're full spiral. Yes, and it's like it, yes, but it's both because I would argue that it's never like you said. I think I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what you just said, but it, something to the extent of before it gets to a certain point. But you can always reverse it. Like you could, you could, you could try to sit for 30 minutes on a meditation cushion, and for 29 minutes be lost in anxious thinking and feeling. And on minute 29, become aware of it and come back to the the focus of your attention, which, you know, your breath, your body, your mantra, whatever it is. And that's not a good sit. But if you do that over and over again, well, then you start coming back at 28 minutes and at 27 minutes. So I, I do think like part of the problem, and this gets back to what I was saying earlier about preparing yourself by practicing in crappy situations, is what you eventually want to work toward is putting yourself in a spot where you're it's never too late. So, yeah, I would agree on that. I'm just saying that, like, I'm not talking about, like, 29 minutes first 30 on, on the mat. I'm talking about when you look at choking, I, te- I tend to think of it as, like, a, it's almost like it becomes a, um, a, the best analogy I could give is, like, a panic attack where nothing works. Yeah, right? no, I hear that. And what I'm saying is that you get to a point where, like, maybe something can work and it gets exponentially harder. Like it's like a train that's gaining momentum as it goes. But like another way to think about it is can you be 0 for 11 from the free throw line and somehow be in a position where the game's on your shoulders and you have one free throw and go one for 12? Uh, Yeah, I mean, 100% you can. And that's what I'm like. So when I use the snowball analogy and I'm, I'm not saying you can't divert it at the bottom, it just takes a hell of a lot more effort to, right? Mm-hmm. So think of it like this. At the top, before it's built momentum, I can kick it, I can push it, I can push my hand against it and stop it, right? Once it's got a lot of momentum, my only out is like 
I better build a like almost like bobsled course to redirect it, right? Or a massive wall for it to like block it. You can still do it. It just takes a heck of a lot more. Yeah, and the more that you practice in these situations and experience them, it, it, it like it it works from both ways because the less likely you are to get to a point where the train has left the station. Yeah. So, so let's dive into maybe a little bit of, okay, we've talked about, uh, about meditation and mindfulness as a, as a helpful thing to this. I think it's also helpful of like, what else is there to do from a practical standpoint? And my mind goes to, uh, again, addressing kind of the underlying causes, which a lot of the underlying causes for choking is you said, like, it's yourself getting in your own way, which is right. But it's like ad- identifying what those are, like, where is that pressure coming from? And it's like, if you can identify, understand, address some of the pressure, is pressures, whatever it is, ex- ex- exactly. Then even if you slow that, that like you slow that, that spiral from happening. Yeah. It, I mean, it's not taking yourself or what you're doing so seriously. Um, that's what I would say. It's having a sense of um, a sense of self or a sense of groundedness that is always going to be underneath the task that you're doing. So for some people, that's religion. For some people, that's family. Um, for some people, that is their community. For some people, it's a pet that they take care of. But it's just something that is not at all in a performance context that's a part of you that serves as the foundation. So your book flops, fucking sucks, but like I'm not my book. You blow the race, sucks, but I'm not the race. And it's not to say that these things aren't really important, Paradoxically, the more that you are not the thing, the better you'll perform at it. At least that's how I tend to work, and certainly my coaching clients. Yeah, no, I think that's that's true, and I think that it's, it's like crafting the ability to do that, even under situations which seem um, extreme. You know, a, a championship game, an Olympic trials, etc. You know, our, our good friend uh, Phoebe Wright used to put it to me when she was competing at this level is even the Olympic trials felt really like a big, big deal. But then she'd remind herself, zoom out and be like, hey, it's just track and field. Like, yeah, yeah, Phoebe's great for for many reasons, and in, in her 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 able her excuse me her ability to take perspective um, for sure. It's funny, you know, is is writers and I don't know what you'd call us on a good day public intellectuals on a bad day public doofuses, but um, having a Twitter feed I think is really good practice for this because your name is literally attached to it. And it's your ideas that you're putting out there. And yet, but it's performance oriented. There are likes, there are retweets, there are followers, there aren't. So in a way, we think of Twitter as like this trivial thing. But I think it's really good practice for separating Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus, the person, from Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus, the performer, and um, not letting your mood swing based on how that's going, not getting too exciting, not getting too down, even though it's attached to your name. I mean, I'm sure an athlete feels this similarly, right? Because like, I see my main tool as my brain. An athlete sees their main tool as their body. So how can Phoebe Wright, the person, the body, 
separate her performance on the track from Phoebe Wright, the person, the body off the track. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. I like the Twitter analogy because it's true. I mean, and it's like understanding and like figuring that it, that that you know that separation is important. And something early on, Brad, I'm I'm curious if you had this experience, but early on, it's it's harder to do until you like come to terms and get used to it. And I explain I explain this a lot to the athletes I work with. Um, when they asked me about my social media and I said, well, I hate this word, but social media is like performance brand, Steve, and not all real Steve, right? Because mm. there's there's a difference. And I'm not saying I'm not real on Twitter. Like it is what I believe and all that stuff. But I have to create this separation because if you don't, then you can caught up, be caught up into believing like you're this person that people think you are based all, solely based on your tweets or your books or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the more that you can align who you are publicly with who you are privately, the better because it doesn't create cognitive dissonance. So in my mind, it's less about you know the performance brand versus the real thing. And more about the real thing in the real performance feedback are things that are completely within your control and internal and aren't at all related to any kind of performance result. Um, so for me, it might be, you know, using the Twitter analogy, sharing something on Twitter and having it totally tank, but not really caring because I still believe that that insight is true. Um, Twitter is very trivial. Take that up a notch. It could be writing a book, having the book not sell, being sad that the book doesn't sell, being upset, being nervous. But underneath that, being okay, being grounded with the fact that it didn't sell because you still believe that what you put in that book is true. Um, So I guess that's what I mean by having this foundation that is not at all... um, not at all related to the whims of, of good or bad performance. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, you know, before we wrap this up, I wanted to address one more thing that I think is really important on choking. And that is the extremes of it when it becomes almost like a habit, right? Mm -hmm. When you have what's called the yips in baseball, right? Where they, where professional baseball players can no longer throw from second base to first base, something that is incredibly, you know, simple that they know how to do that six-year-olds can do, they lose that ability. And I think when it becomes a chronic thing in terms of choking, right, then, and I'm curious on this because you have a a good understanding of clinical psychology, how you'd handle this, but I tend to think of it in two ways, which is the first is you have to disrupt this kind of perception-action bond, right? Mm -hmm. By changing some of those parameters, because it's almost become this ingrained um, affordance, which we talk about a lot. And then the second part that I like to think of it from a long-term perspective is it probably should be dealt almost similar to, uh, to how, how trauma is dealt with. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I can't say, you know, authoritatively, here's what you should do. 
my mind immediately went to something called exposure and response prevention, which is the gold standard treatment for phobias or anxiety. And here, the phobia is a fear of like performance, a fear of being in a high pressure situation. And the way that you get through it is by exposing yourself to those situations over and over and over again until your mind-body system learns that you don't actually have anything to be scared of. Now, what makes it hard is if you're a pro athlete, and as is the case with the yips, you can throw great when you're not in competition, but suddenly you're in competition, you can't throw from first to second base. Well, guess what? Like Your team's not um, going to have a lot of patience for that. So it's really challenging. And I, I'd be interesting, Steve, maybe we could explore this for a future podcast. Have there been stories of players who have overcome the yips? And just again, like to really elaborate, and, and maybe we'll include something in the show notes for you guys. But the yips, it's insane. Like a pitcher gets the yips, and someone that used to be able to throw 100 mile fastballs literally can't throw the ball anywhere near the, the catcher. It's as if the player throwing the ball is like having a seizure. Um, but then in practice, they're fine. It's very, very bizarre. And again, I don't want to overstep my bounds because the yips might be a whole different mind, body, nervous system situation than, it's, than some kind of other form of choking. Steve, I'm looking yeah. to you for help with the yips. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think if I could, I could solve that one. Um, I'd, yeah, you'd, you'd be a wealthy man. Yeah, um, um, but it is—it's a good example of extreme choking. And and again, I think like getting back to something I said earlier: the exposure, response, prevention, putting yourself in that situation over and over and over again, learning that you can still, you know, show up and act. And then over time, having the anxiety go down is helpful. And then the the reliving trauma is really interesting because there the trauma is like messing up a few times, and then you get into this pattern where you have this huge fight-or-flight response every time you step onto the field. Um, but that'd be really interesting. Yeah, and I'm not, I don't have the answer for you, unfortunately. But um, that's, that's why I asked that question and how I think I would handle it or if, you know, someone came to me is that it's, it's this, ingr- it's, I think you have to handle it in two folds. It's like this trauma-type experience, right? that becomes almost like subconsciously ingrained. And then you have this, like, it's so ingrained in terms of this connection that you have to disrupt it in some ways in terms of the movement. So one thing I've done in the past that I think works pretty well, and there's actually some research behind it, is changing the perception, right? So you change the perception dramatically. You disrupt this, like, automatic ingrained jump from perception to action so what does that look like well a musician for example you could literally put a latex glove on their hand and have them play with a glove on their hand which changes that feedback internal and changes like that pattern of uh ingrained motor pattern that goes on in basketball you could um again play with a glove on the hand you could you know turn the lights off literally and you know change the perception coming in in running a lot of times we we change the optic flow which is again this um either running at night or, you know, turning the lights off to a degree in the, uh, well, running on a treadmill or something to that degree or wearing glasses that I've used that are almost like uh, blacked out 
except for a very narrow focus, you're changing that perception coming in, which then changes the linkage for the action. The other thing that I would include in there is you can uh, disrupt things sometimes by inducing an emotion and then changing the action afterwards. So inducing fear or anxiety or pressure, because anytime you induce an emotion, you get this nice swirl of hormones and almost makes it where you're um, ready and apt to, um, to change that memory, to change that connection. So for example, for a basketball player, um, having them imagine or even watch when they've missed a shot and diving into and really trying to exacerbate that feeling that they they had and then shooting directly after that and just shooting, shooting, shooting um, to try and, again, change that thought or perception, uh, thought, action, kind of emotion combination. Sounds good. I think this is a good place to put a wrap on today. I will do my best to offer a quick summary. So we've got clutch performance and three different avenues, well, two different avenues to take, one that fails. The first is flow, making it happen. Excuse me, I'm messing up here. Clutch performance, I'm not performing clutch. Um, Flow, letting it happen, getting completely in the zone, losing yourself, releasing, becoming one with what you're doing, feels great, you perform great. The second is making it happen. Very effortful, strenuous, deliberate, you are very much not lost in your pursuit, but you are focused on your pursuit, on the thing out front of you, on what you want to do. Ends with a great performance. You probably don't feel as good after, but you accomplish the goal. And then there's choking, which is that same kind of strenuous, effortful feeling, except it's self-referential. It's turned inward. You're focused on yourself. And that often is when you get in your own way. And then we talked about how to get out of those situations when you're choking really two big things that we touched on. I do think they're the two most important. One is some kind of mindfulness practice where you get to use that muscle of getting lost in thinking or feeling and then coming back to the object of your focus, your breath, your mantra, your body, whatever it is in your practice. And then the second is what Phoebe Wright, our friend, would call a perspective shift, which is to say, oh, this is an Olympic race or an Olympic trials, but it's still just running. And I have a foundation underneath that that is different than running, that is different than any kind of performance metric. So therefore, I can be a little bit more playful with this. That is my summary. Am I missing anything? I think you nailed it. All right, man. Well, we talked a little bit about sex and orgasm, so I'll end on nailing it. And (laughs) um, we will catch everybody next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.